Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We've reached the halfway mark of our annual flash fiction contest, that point where our voracious judges begin to get increasingly peckish. They've had their appetites whetted, but are still far from sated. If they don't get more to devour, I'm afraid they'll turn full feral. And that, well, that isn't good for anyone. So, for my own sake, and of course the innocent general population, keep those entries flowing. TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest is where you can find all the details you need. You have until midnight on March 1st to submit your entry. We have two tales for you this evening that straddle the thin line between hope and insanity. Our first story for the evening comes from Christian Riley. Chris Riley lives near Sacramento, California, vowing one day to move back to the Pacific Northwest. In the meantime, he teaches special education, writes stories, and hides from the blasting heat for six months of the year. He has had over 100 short stories and essays published in various magazines and anthologies and across multiple genres. 
He is the author of the literary suspense novels The Sinking of the Angie Piper and The Broken Pines. For more information, go to chrisreillyauthor.com. Children of the Night, join me for Christian Riley's The Labor of God's Worm, a Tales to Terrify original. Like a hinge, William's thoughts kept swinging back to the worms. His first encounter came as a dream, exactly one year to the day after Jenny's disappearance. In this vision, William observed Earth from outer space. The planet was a bluish-green orb with a surface that bulged and retracted, indicative of the great squirming within. The movements of such godlike creatures as they tunneled through the planet's core. Ultimately, this dream would prove recurrent plaguing William with profound frequency. Nightly. Daily. Anytime he so much as closed his eyes for rest. But it was only a dream. And of the worms, they found other means to enter William's mind. Of course he saw them in the foods he ate. Noodles and rice were no longer on the menu, but this mattered little. A side of beef, a baked potato some blanched asparagus, all vague pretexts of nourishment, as William saw them for what they might have really been. Seared circular muscle layer, bloated and cracked septum, green nematodes pulled from the sea. They were all worms. His front lawn crawled with them. Each blade of grass, linear in structure, was a worm. Even the clouds have adopted this form, a massive cumulus describing the soft opaque clitellum of a nightcrawler. As parts of a whole, the universe itself suggested the overwhelming presence of something worm-like. Spiral galaxies. The circular orbits of countless suns and satellites. Black holes and wormholes. Were they not each of them a ghostly hint of something that bores and curls, that draws its winding sightless path into the depths of eternity? William certainly thought so. He mulled over these thoughts day and night, as they served as impressions of something tangible, in a world that made little sense to him anymore. Since the day he and his wife realised their greatest form of grief, then later, and with more clarity after the worms had tunnelled holes in his head, all that mattered to William was the memory of his daughter, and of the prospect that one day he and his wife would find some type of closure. That one day... Despite the inherent horror and dread, William and Madeline would find a fragment of their daughter's corpse, and that they would at last grant this find to its rightful place, into the family plot, to the soil below, with its many and more waiting, wriggling, ravenous worms. Jennifer Ann Haley, the daughter, disappeared on a Saturday morning, while looking for seashells along a rocky beach in northern Washington. 
William and Madeline were only 100 feet away when the sneaker wave took the girl. William ran into the water after hearing the crash and flailed against the current for what seemed like hours, almost drowning as well, before struggling back to land. Later, the authorities helped with the search, but they never found Jennifer. Not ever. And the ensuing desperation for that final closure pulled at the seams that, for almost two decades, had bound William and Madeline's marriage. Jennifer was but a child. Their only child. And her absence devastated the couple. William, in particular, let himself go. Let certain pieces of his life fall to the ground like dust. After a year, his dreams and visions, the worms, they appeared. And had become an obsession for him. Then, after two years, it was all William could do to just get himself up in the morning, get to work, sustain his body with coffee, perhaps a little rum in the evening. Anything beyond this was a mountain, and somewhere high up a cliff dangled his wife. The culmination of their loss and pain, along with the brutal passage of time as it leached away in all possibilities of finding Jenny, this culmination had created a stark void in their marriage. A yawning gap which only became stressed with William's growing mania. But now, miracle of miracles. Halfway around the world, just outside Norilsk, Russia, a group of meteorite hunters stumbled across the SS Hydrus. From a distance, the 400-foot steel-hulled freighter looked like a small hill, albeit lacking the expected cover of snow. Upon closer inspection, the hunters found the entire ship encased in a massive block of ice, with a corrugated base spanning the perimeter, as if the earth itself had given birth to the aberration. And an aberration it was, as it had been over 100 years since anyone had last seen the SS Hydrus, the day she sank to the bottom of Lake Huron. It's like a piece of puzzle, William said, reading the news on his laptop. The lost piece, you know? The one that got sucked up the vacuum cleaner or something. I guess, replied Madeline. Her voice sounded reticent, lethargic, tired now of speaking from across the void. William turned away from her, from his laptop, and searched for his beer. There was something on his mind, something beyond the worms that he couldn't quite pinpoint. And damn if his wife was going to help him any. He found the bottle of Heineken on the kitchen counter where he had left it, after his eye had caught the article on his computer. The beer was now lukewarm, but he took a drink anyway, and then looked at his wife. He stared at her until she grew uncomfortable. He saw that on her face. I don't know, Maddie, William said, peeling his eyes away from her. To tell the truth, it's kind of scary. After a pause, Madeline said, I've got some errands to run. She went to the door with her purse and keys, gave a sigh, and then said, I'll see you tonight. A week later, they found another one, Maddie. William's eyes were glued once again to the screen of his laptop. His throat felt tight as a drum. His hands were moist and sticky, as if they had been immersed in water. They found an airplane somewhere in Mexico. So I heard replied Madeline. She was in the kitchen with a glass of wine in one hand, 
absently wiping a stain on the counter grout with the other. William supposed it was all still too new for her. Too bizarre. He considered his wife's scepticism, though he hated it. This plane, he continued. It disappeared in 1948, had 36 passengers on it, and they say it went down in the Bermuda Triangle. William stood and took a step toward his wife, unable to hold back his enthusiasm, despite her unspoken objection. An objection to the path they both knew he'd been travelling on. It was the same path since the tragedy. Only now, things had grown much faster. Faster than the crawling of the worms. The Bermuda Triangle, Madeline. That's in the ocean. Like the other one. That ship in Russia. The plane disappeared into the ocean. Specifically, the plane was a Douglas DC-3, with a last known whereabouts somewhere off the coast of Miami, some 65 years ago. Until an old man discovered it behind his house in Chicayan, Mexico. A colossal ice cube that had sprouted in the night. Everything about the plane's condition was identical to that of the SS Hydrus, with one exception. The passengers were still inside. When the proper officials finally arrived upon the village, a horde of Jakayan men were three quarters into the plane with pickaxes. Several bodies were thawing on the tarp outside. Slabs of meat. Their shapes still contorted to match the void of their former seats. Huddled nearby was a group of old women praying none too softly. William stared at his wife, stared at her long and hard, looking for something on that blank slate she was so fond of portraying. They found the bodies, Maddie. The bodies from the ocean. Don't you get it? There had been a brief attempt from certain governments to snuff out the media coverage of the strange discoveries. Concerns of mass hysteria and all. But it wasn't long before these efforts proved ineffectual. After two more planes had been found in remote areas, one in the mountains of Chile, another in Nepal, Alaska's phantom ship, the SS Bechimo, unearthed itself five miles north of Las Vegas, Nevada. Last seen when abandoned to pack ice in 1969, the large vessel was almost completely thawed upon her discovery. There were no bodies inside, of course. But this detail had little effect on William's mounting optimism. What if, Maddie? William said. He ran his fingers through his hair, picked up a thick layer of grease. What if, what? She replied. She finally replied. You know... What if they find her? In a block of ice somewhere and... And nothing! She's dead, William. She's never coming back. Madeline covered her face with both hands and wiped outward, smearing tears across her cheeks. She looked at her husband, stabbed him with her stare, cold steel in her eyes. You ask me, what if? You haven't slept with me in six months. What if you did that? At last, a variant of the global phenomenon occurred one morning, outside a cafe in Salerno, Italy. It was the discovery of a single human body encased in ice, naked, arms clamped to the sides, eyes wide, wholesome and seemingly alive. After painstaking efforts, the man was eventually identified as one Jason Colburn, who had gone missing ten years prior while on a sailing trip across the English Channel 
William was beside himself with emotion after he read the news. He stood in the corner of the living room that night, in the dark, crying for all wonders of the universe. Such possibilities. Wide as God's own hand. When this revelation came, it made William cry even louder. Made him wail. His mind worked laboriously to put together all the pieces. He thought of his dream then. Of certain entities. God's creations. Crawling worm-like inside the earth. Toting all those things long since forgotten. Pulling them from great black caverns. The storage rooms that housed a million lost souls trapped in ice. Matty! I've got it! He called. His voice was raspy. His eyes blurred, wet with tears. Matty! Where are you? Silence came from down the hall, and he remembered that his wife had gone to the movies with her friends. Why aren't you here, Matty? You should be here right now. Three weeks later, a website went up, sponsored by an international agency on behalf of things long since forgotten, and for the benefit of those who would remember. William bookmarked the page, began checking it daily, hourly, by the minute. Since the arrival of Jason Colburn, 35 human popsicles subsequently rose in the night, crossed the globe, along with 10 more ships and 14 planes, all of which had one time succumbed to the watery depths of the world. And that was only what had been discovered. William envisioned, with exquisite horror, his daughter's well-preserved corpse swiftly melting somewhere in the vast Sahara Desert. No eyes to bear witness of her arrival, save for that of the blazing sun and a few hungry vultures. Ironically, before he found the website, William had stepped away from his obsession for a few days. He even shaved. Stopped calling in sick to work. His wife cooked dinner on one of these nights, and he enjoyed her quaint smile in the kitchen. There was a reconciled effect in her movements, the way she worked the knife, how she chopped and diced and casually transferred consumables from one place to the next. They even laughed together. It was almost as if they were young again, or so William recalled. And as he looked at his wife, he remembered lost details of their marriage, precious moments of a time long before the tragedy. But then the website went up. And it was back to God's worms and black caverns and frozen packages slithering in his mind. It can really happen, Maddie. It can really happen. As subtle as it began, it ended. With every scientist on earth in a mad fervour over solving the riddle. And the entire world biting nails day in and day out. And William withering away in the corner with his laptop. The reappearances just stopped. Days went by. Then weeks. And still, nothing. The suspense was maddening for William, let alone all of humanity. And his thoughts of a finale to this magnificent mechanism of space and time drove a six-inch knife into his gut. We've lost her again, Maddie! He screamed, somewhere in the dark confines of his house. His lonely house. His wife was no longer there to hear him. He wasn't sure where she was. Where she'd gone. Running in denial as always, he presumed. At last, 
the void between them had become cosmic, fathomless, immeasurable. Perhaps Madeline had left him. Left him for good this time. But William hardly cared anymore. Because in the dark, behind his eyes, he saw little pictures of his daughter. He saw her riding in a black ocean with fantastic worms rolling in and out between her limbs, carrying her through the shadows of the deep. He saw her eyes blink, and he knew Jennifer was still alive, somewhere down there. Somewhere right here, here on Earth. William screamed and pulled at his hair, thought he might yank the pictures out of his mind, lay them on the ground before his feet, make them come alive. In this tantrum, he smashed his fist through his laptop and hurled shards of plastic across the room. He cursed his own breath and felt cold. So cold. He found a jacket and slipped it on, left the house in a storm of obscenities and stepped into the pouring rain, while its dollops of thick round water, heavy as the black ocean beyond, the same ocean that stole Jennifer and that hides those great worms, God's worms. We lost Jenny, he kept screaming, over and over and over again. The night was powerful in its blackness, but William saw the ocean all the same, saw it as much as he heard it, and the sound might as well have been Jenny's own voice whispering into his ears, or Madeline's, or perhaps even God's. William took a step forward and then stopped, kicking off his shoes, pulled off his socks. The mouth of the Pacific nipped at his feet. Sharp rocks-like teeth bit into his soles as he continued to walk forward. I'll find her, Maddie, he whispered, as he met the waves. The touch of the cold water was a dull knife across his ankles. I'll find our little girl. I'll do it, I swear. Waist deep now. William felt the entire mass of the Earth's oceans coddle him. It pushed and pulled, guided him forward, poured the secrets of the deep into his ears. And with crashing roars, it promised him victory. There was a visceral tug upon his legs, and this he thought were the worms, the worms at last. They'd come for him. They'd found him. They lurched forward. And in the end he went with them, into their final embrace, with their cold caress, and the pull of the great black sea, down, down, into the cavernous depths, down to find his daughter. As abruptly as it had ended, it began once again. In the plaza of Santa Fe, New Mexico, on the street in front of the palace of the governors, They found another body. A young girl. She stood erect, and like all the others, was encased in ice. Her arms were crossed against her chest. Her hands lay flat against her shoulders. And her stare was haunting and wide. Locked magnificently onto the vast blue sky. That was Christian Riley's From the Labor of God's Worm. 
as read by James Barnett. James Barnett, a.k.a. Jimmy Horrors, is the creator-slash-host-slash-producer of the Night's End podcast. When he's not banging his head against the monitor editing audio, he scribbles horror stories. Check him out at jamesbarnettauthor.com or the Night's End podcast at nightsendpodcast.com. The Night's End podcast is a short story podcast. With a focus on dark, speculative fiction, it hopes to leave you wishing for the night's end before each story is through. Thank you, James. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Matt Thompson. Matt Thompson is an experimental musician and writer of strange fictions. Despite hailing from the damp and isolated island nation of Great Britain, he currently finds himself resident in the northerly climes of Minnesota. His work has been published at Black Static, Pseudopod, Vasterian, Nox Pareidolia Anthology, and many more worthy venues. You can find him online at matt-thompson.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Matt Thompson's The Lady of the Harvest, a Tales to Terrify original.
They say the ocean harbors strange beings, lost and dismal souls of centuries past. Was it such a spirit that capsized the Soteria, condemning all aboard other than myself to the dread ministrations of the bounding main? From calm skies came the most fearful convulsion. Lightning wreathed the masthead in tongues of flame. Within minutes, the sea had become a heaving mass, a vent of hell. Beyond reason lies the unnatural, and then the uncanny. Such a conflagration could only have an origin, not of this world. What misfortune that I should have been chosen thus, a plaything of the gods. The tempest howled for a day and a night. When she was done, only rack was left. Somehow I managed to lash together a raft from the wreckage. My shipmates, carrying to the circling scavengers, seemed to cheer me on as I labored. One after another, their sodden figures sank beneath the waters, arms stiff in salute to this final delegate of our doomed voyage. I drifted for I know not how long. Visions assailed me, my hunger and thirst near overwhelming. How close to oblivion I had come! Would I now die alone, my only companion the endless expanse of blue? Near to the point of expiration, I spied a shadow on the horizon. Certain it was not but a phantom of my own desperate thoughts, I turned my gaze away. I needed not the taunts of demons. My own imminent demise was mockery enough. But the currents pulled me ever closer. Soon enough the illusion took on shape and form. A ship. Ten sails, stiff in the easterly breeze. Her hull as solid as my own flesh and bone. Nearer and nearer I came. No sign of life was there on deck. That alone should have given me pause. For how does a vessel such as this sail unmanned? The crew repaired below decks for reasons unclear? The figurehead, a lady of the seas crowned with a band of flowers, sat haughty and disregarding at the prow close enough now to hear the flap of the sailcloth. I made out the lettering along the foremost part of the hull. The Demeter was her name. It boded well, for surely a goddess of the harvest would offer me sustenance in my desperation. With some difficulty I climbed the Jacob's ladder and swung aboard. The main deck scrubbed to a shine was as deserted as it had seemed. I cupped my hands. Hello! No reply came. I shouldn't have been surprised. What vision must I have made, this ragged specter of the sea? 
I too would have fled at the sight. I would have to seek out the Demeter's compliment, convince them that this fearful interloper meant no harm. Below decks, the cabins lay empty. In the galley, the meals were set out on the table, their contents untouched. Ravenous, I pounced on the victuals, cramming my mouth with potatoes and cheese, bread and meat. Wine I poured down my gullet until my head swam. Still no one appeared. No outraged ship's cook or incensed mate. Before I knew it, my eyes were closing. The captain's cabin was the first I came to. It seemed disrespectful, if not nefarious, to trespass thus. But exhaustion overwhelmed me, and I threw myself onto the bunk. As I drifted into slumber, I thought I heard voices, a man and a woman. The words I couldn't catch, but in their tone I heard fear, a tense uneasiness. Overhead the masts creaked. Water slapped against the hull. Accompanied by this lullaby of the deeps, I drifted into the land of unknowing, my belly fit to bursting, and only a vague sense of disquiet festering at the edges of my thoughts. I awoke to a crepuscular gloom. Only the groan of the masts disturbed the silence. I stared into darkness for a while, considering my options. Could I steer the ship to the nearest port alone? And what calamity had befallen the captain and crew to leave this magnificent vessel abandoned to the elements? As I was pondering these questions, I became aware of a presence beyond the cabin door. Were those footsteps shuffling along the passageway? Icy fingers clutched at my heart. Was I not alone after all? Why, then, had my mysterious companion not made themselves known to me? Back and forth the steps went, back and forth, louder and then softer. For a moment I wondered if one of my shipmates from the Soteria had, by some miracle, survived to make their way here. But this was the Demeter, and all aboard my ship had perished beneath the waves. That much I knew for sure. Finally I could stand it no longer. Forcing my frozen limbs to respond, I sprang to my feet and wrenched the door open. The noise ceased with a suddenness incomprehensible. The passage lay in profound darkness. No man nor woman could be seen, except at the far end, upon the deckward stairway, a shadow slipped from plank to plank. I could barely make out its form. Shrouded in murk, it appeared less a man than a malignant outline, shades blacker than the night beclouding its frame as it ascended. I fancied I could smell a sweetened odor 
ripe flesh, decaying to blight. Even as my eyes adjusted to the dim light, the figure faded to gossamer strands of fabric, a faint haze. Soon, there was nothing there at all. Dismay gripped me in its frigid embrace. I could no more share a voyage with an apparition of this nature than I could survive on the open waves. Had I stumbled upon a ship of ghosts? There were tales, of course. From port to harbor, one might hear fables of the spectral vessels that plowed the seven seas. Their origin? Unknown. Their purpose? Unimaginable. Whosoever might stumble upon them would not be expected to survive. If they somehow should escape, then madness would be their constant companion from that day forward. Insanity, delirium, and, finally, the blessed relief of death. Willing myself not to, yet knowing I must, I climbed that accursed stairway in the creature's wake. All the while, I expected that fate might strike me down. Fate in the form of a specter, a ghoul, a fiend. But the deck was devoid of both the living and the unliving. The stars shone. Beneath their firmament, the shadows were vanquished. There was nothing to frighten me here. I retraced my steps to my temporary berth. Tomorrow I would devise my plans. Until then I would know only oblivion, consoled to have surrendered myself to destiny. I knew no more until the rising sun wrenched me back to awful, inescapable loneliness. Rested thus, I explored every nook and cranny of the Demeter. Not a soul could be found. In the galley, that of the food I hadn't touched was where I left it. Curiously, the meat had spoiled. The effect of some strange overnight putrescence. The wine I left alone. Had that been the cause of the nocturnal chimeras? It would hardly have been the first time my mind had played tricks on me while in such a state. During my search, I gleaned that the crew must have numbered at least twenty, according to the arrangement of bunks in the smaller cabins. Twenty, and not a soul left on board, other than... But no, I would not relive the primal fear that had overtaken me in the dead of night. The wine, it was... Wine, and the delayed shock of having survived near certain death. Closer inspection of the captain's cabin in the daylight, streaming through the porthole, revealed a space arranged as neatly as a drawing room. My respect for the man grew the more I investigated. There were two bunks, separated by an oak writing desk. 
the bedspread of the undisturbed bunk was tucked neatly in, the pillow plumped and soft. On the wall were pinned charts of places barely known to me. Java, Berbera, Salvador. The room's occupant was surely well-traveled, and perhaps a genuine adventurer. With great trepidation, I rifled through the papers on the desk. What if the man should return now? Surely be clapped in irons for my temerity. But no, I was assuredly the only one aboard. I picked up a leather-bound journal. The pages contained an account of the journey to date. Originating from the insalubrious surroundings of Bristol, the ship had made its way here via the major shipping lanes of the Atlantic Basin. There was nothing untoward in the entries I found, inscribed in the captain's neat hand. James Harl was his name, and he was accompanied by his daughter Elizabeth, the occupant of the second bunk. Captain Harl was a merchant of the crown, and a wealthy man indeed from my understanding of his account. Elizabeth, I discovered, was to be married off upon their return to England. It seemed she was less than happy about her forthcoming nuptials to one William Courtney, a captain of the King's Guard. I found myself smiling on more than one occasion, since Captain Harl's exasperation at this state of affairs. For what man wishes complications upon himself? All he wanted was to return to his wife and estate and see his only offspring made an honest woman of. A hollow feeling nestled in the pit of my stomach as I followed their story. What had caused them to abandon ship? I turned to the final page of the journal. Here, surely, I would find some answer to the riddle. The penultimate entry detailed mundane matters of wind and waves. Beneath, the last passage had been etched onto the page with barely enough ink to mark the paper, the captain's hand thin and spidery. What was it we saw? He had written. Ever since that night our appetite is gone. Elizabeth, my darling daughter, wastes away. The crew, too, have lost all desire to live. Silently sit, barely able to steer us onward. In the darkness we hear sounds no man should ever know. Eerie cries, the beating of death's wings, ocean swells that beckon us to our doom. How should we escape from this misery? Our voyage, I fear, is done. Stricken, I put the journal back down. What horrors awaited me if I remained here? Onward the ship sailed, but to where I couldn't say. If even a man such as Captain Harl had succumbed to despair then, what hope had I? I barred the door and waited for night. If the westerly winds picked up, 
I might make landfall within days. Whether I would be sane by then was something I didn't wish to consider. At least I had foreknowledge of my possible fate, unlike the poor, unfortunate crew. Nocturnal specters be damned. I had survived the wreck of the Soteria. Here, too, I would prevail. Weariness overtook me. I stretched out onto the captain's bunk and awaited the darkness. I awoke to the sound of scratching, clawing my way from nighttime phantasmagorias to reluctant awareness. Were there rats on board? At least not all God's creatures had abandoned ship. I blinked, clearing my vision to seek out the source of the sound. A shaft of moonlight speared through the porthole. Not three feet away from me sat the figure of a man. Hunched over at the desk, he scribbled at the journal, quill clutched tight in bent fingers. Unable to move a muscle lest he become aware of my presence, I lay frozen, the thudding of my heart deafening in my ears. How had he not seen me? Perhaps we, the living, are invisible to those of the other realms. Perhaps he was blind, despite his furious drafting. Or, most disconcerting of all, I had no more significance to him than I had to the wind and waves and sky. He lay his quill down and buried his head in his hands. Surely this was the same apparition I had seen the previous night. Were the crew of the Demeter so overwhelmed by his presence they had no recourse but flight? But I knew a man such as Captain Hall would lead by example. And never would he desert his daughter, his own flesh and blood. The figure rose unsteadily to his feet and shuffled across the cabin, giving not a sign he was aware of my existence. The door opened and closed, and I was alone. Lunar rays illuminated the open page he had written upon. The words stood out as clear as day. Trembling, I rose to cast my eye upon them. The crew declined by the hour. Four have gone overboard now. The rest, I fear, will follow, despite my cajoling them to overcome their despair. We must go onward. Phantoms be damned. Elizabeth is my only salvation. For her I continue, for her I must be strong. Our fate is in our hands now. So, Captain Harl, this was. What could have happened to twist him into this monstrous form? Would this be my fate too? I knew I had no choice but to confront him. I would surely perish if I did nothing. Oh, death, come for me. Come and do your worst. With fear in my heart, I crept from the cabin. The passageway was strangely empty. Had he moved quicker than I imagined? 
willing my feet to move, I made my way to the site of last night's horrors. None stood on the stairway. Above deck, the same. In the shapes of the stars, I saw fell patterns, hooks, knives, leering faces. The very air had stilled. A chill stole through my bones, my flesh flinching from imagined blows, writhing hands. At least the figurehead guided us still. To where, though, I knew not. Adrift we were, I and the ship, and the lady at the fore. But wait. Our noble lodestar with her crown of petals was not alone. Beside her stood another, the tall and elegant outline of a young woman, slender fingers reaching out to caress the carven form. Was this the one I had encountered in the passageway? Now I might discover the truth about the Demeter, the maddened diary entries, the empty hulk upon which I stood. Oi! I cried. My voice lay flat on the dead air. Where is the ship's company? She whirled around. I had never seen one so beautiful. Eyes wide in terror, she clasped her hand to her mouth. Please, she gasped. Spare me. I am betrothed, sir. Let me live. Her words came muffled, as if surfacing from the briny deeps. Not wishing to fear her any more than I already had, I raised a hand in supplication. A racking sob escaped her. The boat yawed and swayed, the sails billowed, and a shuffling came from behind me. The sound was all too familiar. How foolish I had been, stricken at the thought of what I might see, yet knowing I must face my destiny. I turned to lay eyes upon my nemesis. It was not just one man. Fifteen they were, strong and true voyagers of the sea. None approached. In the wan moonlight they resembled statues, less human still than the brave lady at our prow. At their head stood their captain. I reached for him, a smile upon my face at last. Captain Harl, I tried to say, but the words came as a pained hiss. Stepping back a pace, he drew a cutlass from his belt. Strike him down, the first mate cried. Others joined in, exhorting their leader to murder me in cold blood. Still, Captain Harl hesitated. Gracious he was in that moment, imperious yet terrible. Father! Elizabeth, for I knew her now, ran to him. If you strike this demon down, he will only return twice as strong. Demon? I barked out a mirthless laugh. They thought me a spirit of the ocean. What new absurdity was this? Captain Harl shielded his daughter behind him. 
revulsion twisting his features into hatred. He raised his weapon to strike. No, I wanted to cry. You were wrong, wrong, wrong. But no words would issue forth from my lips. Cold overcame me. The call of the grave rattled my bones. All I could do was bow my head and await the inevitable. A cleaving of the air and frozen steel frosted my flesh. Elizabeth wailed, a banshee shriek that echoed out over the waters. Yet still I was aware. Had the captain somehow spared me? When I dared straighten up, Captain Hall was staring at me, an expression no man should ever hold on his face. Two of the crewmen stood upon the rail. The cutlass fell to the deck. In place of its blade, a jagged, smoking stub poked from the handle. Ashen-faced, Captain Harl tipped forward and lay still. The crewmen plunged, silent, to their dooms. Elizabeth dropped to her knees, babbling. The remaining crew backed away, fear enshrouding them like an ocean fog. And I knew. Soon enough, they would all be gone. I would be alone once more. The captain's journals told no lie. It was I who haunted this vessel. I who had brought shame upon my soul. I who had no words of apology. There would be none to hear them anyway. Only myself and the boards, the rigging, the proud lady whose task had ended, as all tasks must, in failure. And so onward we sailed. Days and nights passed. One by one they left me for the comforting embrace of death, Elizabeth the last of all. Now the seas lie becalmed, the sails of the Demeter hanging limp. No wind, will ever feel them again. On starless nights I walk the decks, declaiming passages from the journals of Captain Harl to the sky, dreaming foul dreams of foam, of ash, of wind. That was Matt Thompson's The Lady of the Harvest, as read by James Cheatham. Born and bred in the USA, James has literally been around the world and back again. He is a retired military veteran that has been to war four times. Now, he narrates audiobooks full-time. He started back in 2018 with some divine direction and is absolutely loving it. Thank you, James. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible 
by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Lessel Baxter, Paul Belcher, Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, and Orion D. Higra, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Podchaser, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs, so you can show those around you just how twisted you truly are. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, Crystal Hammond, Spencer Desparty, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we confront our inner demons with more Tales to Terrify. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.